Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before we get started today, I want to tell you about a cool limited run series that WFAE is putting out. It's called Work It. It's running November 13th to December 18th, and they're having conversations with people about their relationships to their jobs and how those relationships shape their view of the world. It's hosted by TEDx Charlotte organizers Stephanie Hale and Jill Byers, who follow their curiosities underneath the job and the question, what do you do? and into the beautifully complex identities of people we encounter in our everyday lives, from carpet layers to lawyers, barbers to burlesque performers, and beyond. Check that out wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You rolling? Yeah, I'm rolling. I just want to make sure that there's... Okay, there. Sorry, I had to make sure I had Oh my gosh. My my mic hasn't been plugged into my recorder this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Everything's fine. I'm a audio professional. Check, check. Yep, here I am. Now I'm speaking into a mic. You got it. You got it. Okay, now you may begin. It's time for labor. The Social Science of Work, Women, and Motherhood. I'm Amy Westervelt. I'm Elise Hugh, and today's episode gets into communal parenting, when villages of neighbors and extended family all take part in parenting. Right, because the nuclear family can't really pull it off, hasn't worked for a while, isn't even the structure of most families in America. So, Amy, when you're around other families... How much do you engage with their kids? How much do you get into setting boundaries for them or just saying parental stuff to them if they're misbehaving? Well, if they're at my house, I feel a little more comfortable. I never get, like, mad at other people's kids because I feel like that's, like, it's not done. But I will say, like, you know, hey, what are you doing there? I kind of feel like most kids are frightened enough by other people's parents that you don't really have to, like— do much other than show slight disapproval. But there is such discomfort, right? There is a lot of discomfort in our culture around 
you know, taking care of other people's kids if they didn't explicitly ask you to, or giving any instructions to other people's kids, setting boundaries for them um, when they're just kind of around, which is a bit of a culture shock because I'm Chinese American and the Chinese are a little bit more of a communal society. And um, I lived in Seoul, South Korea, where my kids were born um, and lived there until the oldest one was five. And there it was totally normalized um, that strangers— would just come up to you and tell you how to take care of your baby. So I would walk around with um, either my second or my third daughter when they were just born. And there were ajumas, which are sort of middle-aged or older, I would say older, like 60 and up, Korean ladies who would just take the baby, just snatch the baby from your arms and like start (laughs) holding them and instructing me in Korean. The baby was too cold and I needed to wrap them up more. Or what was was it doing out? Because it was such a newborn. And um, (laughs) that's amazing. <laughs> it was sort of annoying to have my newborn just like snatched from my arms, right. but it was also kind of rad because there's an assumption there that the community is responsible or can care for your children. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's awesome. And like, I did a little bit of research in Japan and I know you reported there too. And it's like little kids taking the subway by themselves and it's fine because like, The assumption is that everybody will look after them. That's right. Yeah, they start taking the subway, the Tokyo subway, and multiple changes sometimes to get to school or um, other programs at age six. So first graders will be by themselves, which would be unheard of, say, (laughs) in Los Angeles. Yeah. When my eldest, Ava, was three, we were at a convenience store near my apartment, and I was short on cash, and so I needed to go back to the apartment to get money, and so I just left her there in the store with the clerk (laughs) because we were in Korea, and the clerk just watched and entertained her, like, no questions asked. So I came back, and Ava's, like, sitting on a stool behind the counter in the convenience (laughs) store um, with the clerk, and we didn't even speak the same language. You know, there was just this assumption there. That's amazing. Because, yeah, I feel like if that happened here, not only would the (laughs) clerk, like, not look after her, they might, like, call the cops on you for leaving her there, you know? Well, and this communal idea is also true for indigenous communities in America. So Native American communities parent and parented their kids as villages, as communities. And when the settlers and the colonists came in, white America, essentially, they really pathologized that way of parenting. Yeah, that's right. So today on the show, we're going to hear from Janelle Palacios. She's a certified nurse midwife who grew up on the Flathead Reservation in northwestern Montana. I have family members, uh, great-grandparents, who were taken from our traditional lands and our reservation in Montana and shipped off to the East Coast. Her expertise is tragically relevant to all of this because, yeah, everything old is new and happening on repeat again and again. Um, Janelle studies the lingering effects of family separation and really what happened to thousands of Native families when kids were removed from their families and initially sent off to boarding schools and then later um, adopted by white families, which created just this massive break in mothering traditions and family traditions and grew out of this idea from sort of the mainstream white American powers that be that the way that Native communities ran their families was dysfunctional and wrong in some way. 
This is called the Indian Adoption Project. A little history for those of you who, like me, weren't taught this in school. So for a good hundred years or so, Native American children were taken from their tribes by white people. Yeah, first there was the Indian boarding school period when the federal government would take Native kids from their families and ship them off often across the country to these religious and military schools that would cut their hair and change their clothes and generally try to divorce them from their culture. Few of these boys and girls have ever seen a white man, yet through the agencies of the government, they are being rapidly brought from their state of comparative savagery and barbarism to one of civilization. At one of these government dormitories for Native American children, the motto was, kill the Indian and save the man. Yeah, and even when support would die down or funding would go away for these schools, because there were, you know, media Mm. stories about abuses that were happening and the public would be kind of like, what's going on here? When these boarding schools started to get shut down, you had the whole Indian Adoption Project, which was a program of the Child Welfare League of America. They contracted with the Bureau of Indian Affairs to place Native children with white families. And it was this whole thing where it was considered, you know, better for these kids to be with white families. And it was so enlightened of the white families to adopt these kids. You could actually get a child for $10. I mean, like those ads that you see today about like starving children in other countries, except if you sent in $10, you would actually get a child and there was a big religious component too. So it was really common for conservative evangelical or Mormon families to adopt Native kids because they weren't just like saving the kid, they were saving souls. We're talking almost 100 years here, from the late 1800s to the 1970s that this was happening. And by then, an estimated third of all Native American children in the United States were removed from their parents. The repercussions of this unbelievably fucked up program and what was lost when the Native American model of communal parenting was stigmatized by white colonialists. That's coming up after a quick break. We're back with midwife and researcher Janelle Palacios. She specializes on the impact of this mass adoption of Native American children away from their tribes and into white families. So there's definitely generations of children that were, in a sense, almost lost. She's a voice on the lasting issues created by the Indian Adoption Project and the Indian boarding school period. I met up with her at a playground, as you will hear, with both her girls and my boys and lots of other kids running around. So there's a lot of turmoil in our history. And so also to understand Native women's um, mothering experiences, you have to look at how history has impacted um, their mothering process. You know, for example, my, uh, I have family members, uh, great grandparents, who were taken um, from our traditional lands and our reservation in Montana and shift off to the East Coast. Just even researching this particular episode has just gutted me again and again that this was going on for so long and it was so normalized. 
This break in the chain of parenting and the attitudes of whites about it to try and, quote, save Native children by putting them in white families sent the message that the communal way that most tribes approach raising kids is a bad thing, when it actually is, in a lot of ways, a better way. Yeah, exactly. Janelle explains how her tribe saw all kids as the responsibility of all adults. So if you were misbehaving anywhere on the reservation, there would definitely be an auntie around giving you shit for it. But she feels like in American society, like we were talking about before, you're just not supposed to talk to other people's kids. The family group, the clan group, the community group takes the role overall as a a general parenting of children. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was kind of that fail-safe for families that were affected that, you know, maybe the direct parents may have been absent or intermittently around or may have been abusive or whatever traumas they were dealing with and um, passing on to their children Mm -hmm. or living out in their lives. There's a good chance that there were other people in the community who may or may not have been directly related. Yeah. uh, Like a direct... Aunt or uh, uncle or grandparent Exactly. It could have been some extended family members that helped take on that parenting and guiding role. Mm -hmm. And so some kids then had both parenting kind of experiences from their direct parents and then also from the extended family. Mm -hmm. Which I believe still holds today. In terms of kind of what you're seeing now or what you saw like in this research Mm -hmm. that you did, I guess like what are some of the ways that the system, for lack of a better word, could could like better support this way of mothering? Well, it's a, it's a huge shift, right? Because yeah. I'm not exactly sure how you could support that mm-hmm. because it would require changing social norms, which is so incredibly hard. Yeah. And the big social norm from white or European history mm-hmm. is that, yes, you value the individual and it comes out in our history and in art and, and education. We come back to this again and again, right? What does a good mother or good mothering even mean, right? And it's not necessarily what the white, European-centric, dominant culture says it is. Owing to America's puritanical roots, we commonly see preferences for the individual over the group. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is a big part of America's history. The people who came here were wanting to get away from, you know, religious persecution and all that, yes. But also it was to get out from under the aristocracy and this very rigid hierarchy that, you know, meant that you were born into a particular class and you stayed there. And so everything about the early colonizers to the U.S. was focused on this individual thing. It was about having an individual relationship with God because they were rejecting this hierarchy of priests back home. It was the self-made man that was a rejection of the aristocracy. And the nuclear family very much came out of that, too. It had started to emerge in England and Western Europe, but Americans really doubled down on it, in part because in a lot of cases, they were leaving behind their extended family. And as part of that, men were not only heads of the household, they were also responsible for the salvation of the whole family. That idea that each family should take care of itself and children were the sole responsibility of the biological parents continues to today, and it's still what's valued for families. But it seems so obvious that focusing on the health of the community would be better for everyone. Janelle actually calls it a higher order kind of priority. 
and from the work that I did with the, the women, you know, the mothering for all, that this is a sense that there were women who really looked beyond their own children and looked to the greater community and really took on that traditional role of being a mother yeah. for everyone. For the community. Exactly. Yeah. It's a sense that you value the individual in some cases more so than the good of the community. Mm-hmm. And when you look at direct parenting styles, right? Like the helicopter hovering parenting that is very typical of a European white uh, yeah. community or society. Yeah. And what's valued that you try to protect and insulate your child from woes and struggles and strife and hurts on the opposite side of that would not be negligence. It would be allowing children to explore their world and learn from their experiences. Yeah. Um, and build resilience in that way. Exactly. How do we help children build resilience? I believe it's by giving them struggles. I yeah. believe it's by letting them encounter struggles. Yeah. Not necessarily the, the horrible ones, but how do you prepare your child to become a young adult and for adulthood if they can't deal with um, yeah. internal problems? This is something that sociologist Patricia Hill Collins talks a lot about in the context of what she calls community mothering or other mothering. And the anthropologist Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy talks about this. She calls it, you know, alloparenting. It's this idea that kids are going to be part of the rest of society. And so it's sort of in everyone's interest to make sure that they're not assholes. (laughs) That's it, basically. That, you know, we're all part of, like, society and community together. And therefore, it benefits everyone if we all kind of look out for each other, including kids. Bottom line, many Native women and similarly Black women have maintained a form of communal parenting that's proved more resilient and adaptable to modern times than the nuclear family model, which really should only have been like a blip in human development. It's also a lot less pressure on us. And Janelle gets at that idea with you, Amy. Another part, too, of parenting in this in this country, right, is that, you know, we talk about the individual and yeah. we think about parenting in a middle class, a high middle class you know, white dominant perspective is Mm -hmm. that moms do it by themselves. Maybe the father is involved or the partner is involved, but that moms should be able to do it all. Yes. Right? Like, and women have to face that. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. you know, whether or not women are close to family or friends or uh, to, to help draw upon their support, but for the most part, women are encouraged in different ways that they should be able to do this. Take it all on Mm -hmm. themselves. Yes. Again, this is really rooted in American history. And we mostly hear about the benefits of this quote-unquote exceptionalism, but there were some serious downsides, too. Well, you have a country that was really started by people who were rejecting community Mm -hmm. from the very beginning, right? right? And then, like, yeah. Yeah. And, And then, like, they come here and it's like you know, kind of this, like, every man for themselves sort of thing. Yes. And it's, it's just kind of carried on from there. Especially the expansion westward. Yeah. Because those were even special people who then had children who then helped found uh, cities and towns and stuff that the value was so strong yeah. that you had to, uh, yeah, like, you had to pay attention and take care of the individual and to hell with uh, the other people who are here and we'll just exterminate them, you know, get rid of them. Okay, killing is not working because now we have some people, you know, saying maybe we shouldn't be doing that. What's really interesting too is that I, where I come from, 
on a reservation. Yeah. We did not learn any of our history, this history, yeah. Native American contact history. It was like a blurb and a paragraph, basically the stealing of this land. And they only would value community if it was to um, prevent anyone being killed or support from right. like, the, the, the winter or from a... It was like a negotiation or something. Yes. Than like, an yeah. alliance. It was an alliance, a <laughs> momentary alliance yeah. before we go off to our own homesteads, right? Right. And now it's responsible for the pain and isolation we feel today as parents. If we go way farther back, researchers have found that the notion of community parents, also known, as Amy mentioned, as aloe parenting, is actually fundamental to how humans we're able to evolve beyond our animal ancestors in the first place. Yeah, that's right. Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, the anthropologist I mentioned a little bit ago, she found that the emergence of alloparents began in our early evolutionary ancestors and ultimately led to smarter brains and better social skills. It's basically what set the stage for kids to grow up slowly and remain dependent on others for longer than chimps did. And that paved the way for humans with bigger brains. TLDR, when caring became a core value of group organization, humans were able to evolve into the thinking apes we are today. Where do we go from here? Janelle reflects on a notion worth thinking about in this time of public health crisis and social crisis and environmental crisis. You know, under the impoverished line, families that will just share everything they have yeah. with other families or other family members. Mm -hmm. You know, they may not have an extra room for someone to kind of crash, who they just met. Yeah. But they can they have a couch or the floor. Yeah. And I don't know, like, you really like this sweater that I'm wearing? Well, here you go. And that's something that uh, whenever I return home, like, I see that all the time happening. Yeah. When I leave home yeah. or I'm outside of any kind of native area. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's it's very different. There's that sense of sharing. No, it's yeah. true. That, that thread is, like, so <laughs> present in all of U.S. history. Right. You know, sharing your resources and yeah. it's the shared responsibility in a community. Right? right. Because that's really what I think it comes down to is that it's a shared responsibility of safe, safekeeping your community. And that happens also in other shared responsibilities like the parenting. Big thank you to Janelle Palacios. She is a registered nurse, midwife, and public health researcher who focuses on Native families. The word intersectionality gets tossed around a lot, but this is where it could really be useful and a force for change. Really looking at Native mothering practices as not just something that's, you know, interesting and good to know about and should not be pathologized, but as something to actually hold up as a way that we could and should all be approaching parenting to make it more resilient and to make it more functional in our society today. 
Yeah, I'm totally down with community mothering. You know, it's always been very big in Asian cultures, and I think it's awesome. But how do we actually put these ideas into practice? Well, yeah, I think you're seeing this a lot as people sort of react to the pandemic and how long it's kind of going on and school's not reopening and all of that stuff. Like the potting thing, I'm hearing from a lot more people about, you know, leaning on extended family, grandparents helping with running Zoom school, people moving closer to their parents, all that kind of stuff. But we can't just expect those things to stick post-pandemic. We need for there to be systemic social change that is actually backed up by policies that continue to enable those changes once everything goes back to quote-unquote normal. If you haven't heard other episodes in this season, I really encourage you to because we hit in the other episodes a lot of the policy fixes that could address some of the problems mentioned in this particular episode. There are solutions like what they're doing in Japan, which is episode two of Labor about home ec for boys and men so that they take on more of a share of household and childcare duties. Mandated parental leave is a theme that has come up again and again. So check out the other episodes in our feed. And that's it for this episode, a dense, history-packed one. If you're liking this kind of stuff, please subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends. That's how they'll find us. And we want to hear from you. Email team at reasonablevolume.com, T-E-A-M at reasonablevolume, spelled out, dot com. Find me on social at Elise W-H-O. And me at Amy Westervelt. Labor is brought to you by Amy's company, Critical Frequency, and my company, Reasonable Volume. This episode was produced with love and care by Audrey No, with editing by Rachel Swaby and mixed by Mark Bush. Happy Allo Parenting. Talk to you next time. <laughs>